platform that brings you the history of leftists of color one swipe at a time. And this is the Left Pocket Project podcast. Before I start, I wanted to read a few nice things people are saying about the podcast. For example, someone included the Left Pocket Project podcast as one of, quote, some leftist podcasts you should listen to, alongside some of my fellow podcast comrades in arms. Another person called episode 10 of the Left Pocket Project podcast on leftist student movements in Ethiopia great, while another listener noted that the episode, quote, blew her away. Someone commented on the project as a whole, saying that the Left Pocket Project was, quote, one of the coolest things I've come across in a while, an online effort to recenter people of color and blackness in leftist discourse and social movements. Looking forward to it unfolding. Another listener noted, I supported Left Pocket Project on Patreon. It's good, fam. Which reminds me, you can show your support by going to patreon.com slash leftpoc and donating a dollar or more a month to show your appreciation and to help keep the show afloat. And on that note, on with the show. For today's episode, I'll be speaking with Seattle-based writer, historian, and filmmaker Sean Scott. Sean's work has appeared in Jacobin Magazine, Sports Illustrated, and the film journal Senses of Cinema. He is the author of the 2015 ebook Something Better, Millennials and Late Capitalism at the Movies. He's also a writer for City Arts Magazine, where he has a bi-weekly column about popular culture and late capitalism called Faded Signs. Sean has also just released a book entitled Millennials and the Movements That Made Us, a cultural history of the U.S. from 1982 to the present, which we discuss in depth here as well as much more. So today I am speaking with Sean Scott. Sean, thank you so much for being with me. Hello, hello. Thank you for having me on. Absolutely. So um, you recently wrote a book, and I'm going to ask you a few questions about that. I want you to definitely introduce the book, let us know what it's all about. Um, Uh I have a few things that I'd like to go over that are very specific from the book. Um, But first things first, I heard of you for the first time actually on um, delete your account a few weeks ago, or maybe mm-hmm. even a week ago, and you were talking about some of the issues that you've noticed on the left and the progressive left, um, more so than what we would we normally see in the news as the left, or in other words, the Democrats, right? Um, mm-hmm. Push us a little bit further than that. But you were talking about some of the issues regarding um, race, identity, branding, and the like um, that you covered in an article that you wrote recently in defense of call-out culture, it's called, mm-hmm. uh, for city arts. So I wanted to just start by talking to you a bit about that article and some of the, the arguments that you make. And then I wanted to transition into you actually introducing the book and telling us a little bit more about the book, which is coming out today. Day as we're recording this, which is Friday. Um, so first of all, if you could just introduce the article to us and what your primary thesis and arguments are within it, and where do you think uh, they fit in terms of looking at the left as it moves forward? Right. Um, so first of all, thank you so much for having me on. I'm glad uh, you made it through uh, that Delete Your Account episode. It was really, <laughs> really fun uh, to record. Um, so the In Defense of Call Out Culture was... Uh, written sort of in response to fortuitously, I think like three or four writers in a span of like nine days uh, 
in late January um, or at some point in January had all sort of taken turns uh, describing and really criticizing what they saw to be a problematic uh, cultural tendency on the left, right? Uh, Megan Day uh, was a, uh, a very knowledgeable writer who's written for Jacobin or writes for Jacobin um, in an article about sort of millennial perfectionism, talked about call it culture as a way of reinforcing um, a sort of cultural panopticon where people feel like they're unable to make slip up or make a mistake and that there are sort of digital hordes waiting uh, to capitalize on you uh, and call you out for being a racist or a sexist of some kind. And Megan's thesis, I think, was that this was having an adverse effect on uh, the mental health of many people who are on social networking. Katie Herzog, who's a writer here in uh, Seattle, where I'm based uh, for The Stranger, wrote a piece um, that really took on the problem, as she saw it, of call-out culture head-on um, and really framed it as something that was uh, stifling dissent and disagreement among the American left, broadly defined. Mm. Um, and there's another piece that I can't, I, I'm having a hard time registering. Oh, Amber uh, Ailey uh, Frost wrote mm. uh, another piece that sort of mentioned it tangentially, or at least touched on um, an article um, that was pretty formative in a lot of these criticisms of call-out culture, Mark Fisher's uh, exiting the vampire castle. And so I sat back and watched, you know, after the first one, I was like, okay, I see that that's been said. Then the second one comes out and it's like, you know, I'm starting to to feel a type of way about this. And by the time I read the third one, it, I think a few, um, it, that's where the urge to push back really, really came. And so in defense of call-out culture, which is what I wrote uh, partially to sort of summarize a lot of these arguments that the other three writers had relayed, but then also to try to contextualize this broader uh, discussion about call-out culture and um, to situate that in a broader history of the American left uh, post-1968, saying that we've actually been in a situation before where uh, people who we thought of as leftists criticized people who were a little bit further left or who were uh, maybe on the identitarian left, groups like the Black Panthers, um, maybe more radical groups like the Weather other Underground. And many of those people fled the coalition that um, had, had really been the governing consensus in the post-World War II period. It's the way that you get uh, sort of a, a very vivid neoconservative movement of people who had been formally uh, composed, who, who had formally marched with Dr. King and been champions of civil rights struggles. Very, very suddenly, uh, by the time we get to, uh, say, the middle 1970s, um, sort of joining into uh, Richard Nixon's appeals to the silent majorities, um, ways of stigmatizing uh, sort of the long-haired radicals on college campuses, and just a general sense or a general sort of defection, I think, of uh, white American leftists or former leftists in particular who uh, were sort of not able to stand uh, the heat, if you will, of a fomenting anti-war movement a fomenting civil rights movement that was suddenly more preoccupied with questions of uh, poverty and redistribution than it was with formal uh, civil rights discourse. And it seemed to me that a lot of the writers, maybe without knowing it some, maybe while knowing it, um, who were talking about call-out culture and saying that, you know, the identitarian left and people of color on the left are maybe a little bit too sensitive, a little bit going a little bit too far in um, calling out racism, maybe in calling out sexism, calling out ableism. And I think it's important to realize that uh, the left has struggled historically to hold on to all the tools that it has needed to, to hold the most privileged members of the left accountable. 
And that it seemed to me that a lot of these uh, articles that were sort of being rehashed and these arguments about call-out culture were really uh, functions, knowingly or not, of a, a certain reactionary uh, tendency that we've seen turn into neoconservatism before. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's interesting because when I had seen, similarly to you, I saw all these articles popping up, and I recall listening to other podcasts and, and reading other texts um, related to it, there were lots of people who were sort of positioning themselves as like acolytes of Mark Fisher, which is interesting. Um, mm-hmm. And I think in ways that like, I, I personally don't have any gripes about Mark Fisher, but it became, it, it, it sort of, everyone was coalescing around this one article and sort of turning it into the, the new Bible of the new left, right? And right. I think there were certain aspects of, it, of that piece that are certainly worth keeping in, in mind and that are very salient, and mm-hmm. especially in pushing us uh, to consider that sometimes things do go too far. But at the mm-hmm. same time, if you know, if this becomes the, the end-all be-all of the discussion about what the left should look like and how it should be inclusive on its face, right, um, then that mm-hmm. poses several problems. But I appreciate that you went into it and you really sort of broke down some of not only the problems with, with his article so much, but more the problem in the response and the use of the piece and the ideology within the piece expressed in the, within the piece um, right. to sort of silence other parts of the left. Um, but on that note... What's interesting about your book is that you actually open with one such person who's very active in calling out uh, certain problems on the left, and that person is Marissa Johnson. So your book, which just came out today, Friday the 23rd, is called Millennials and the Moments That Made Us. And I wanted you to talk about that, of course. Uh, We're going to talk about it for the rest of this podcast. But Mm -hmm. I think it's really interesting that you chose to open with Marissa Johnson, someone who is rather polemic to some degree um, for some people on the left. And I think particularly, you know, during uh, election 2016, for those of you who may not know who she is by name, she was one of the protesters who um, went up on stage during Bernie Sanders' speech in Seattle. And if I'm not mistaken, that speech in Seattle was about Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid. Right. so when I saw it happening, I said, and I was I was out of the country, and I saw this, and you know, there's things, there were aspects of it that were left out, context that was left out. But of, upon first viewing, I said, it's kind of odd to me that we are focusing so much on black death that we're not talking about what it means and what it takes to sustain black life. And by that, mm-hmm. I mean, for example, um, you know. There are people who are lower income, who are black, there are elderly people, there are disabled people who are black, who depend on things like Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid to survive. And so right. my question is, how do we fit um, this form of call out, which I think is is valid, within a larger question about what the needs of, of especially lower income uh, people of color happen to be? And then finally, uh, why did you choose her? And I, I'm fascinated about this because, as I said, she can kind of be... Um, you know, as much as, as I respect her, too, I think for some, she's she sort of triggers a certain response. And I'd right. be curious as to why you had her write your foreword. Yeah, it's it's honestly, in, in all the um, interviews that I've done, uh, maybe the, the dozen or so interviews that I've done about this book, people that I've talked to about it, it's really a question that, for whatever reason, uh, wink, wink, doesn't come up uh, oh. as often as I thought <laughs> it would. And um, I know Marissa because we're both based here locally, I was actually there that day when she interrupted uh, Bernie Sanders. And I think something that uh, she had said when I talked to her um, about that protest and the aftermath of it, that has always sort of resonated with me in a general way that she sort of put forward um, 
the actions that she took to put black lives to the center uh, of a discussion where they might not necessarily have been, um, is that if you can't carve out the space to do this and to center black life on the left, we really have no shot in this American project anyway, because this is the ideological orientation that is supposed to be the most responsive, uh, the most receptive and the most, the, 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 and, and on the cutting edge ideologically, politically, however else of sticking up for vulnerable populations that have been historically disadvantaged by capitalism. Mm -hmm. So that if you're a, if you're a member of the left broadly defined, right. And the left is a multi, you know, tendency, multi uh, factional sort of big tent term that people use to include everyone from Hillary Clinton to Angela Davis. Um, you know, and as big as that tent is, if in this camp, um, in a democratic socialist setting where people are turning out in a, in a, on a hot Seattle, uh, sunny day in August in 2015 to turn out to hear a democratic socialist speak on behalf of and in advocacy of vulnerable populations in, under capitalism, if in this place, uh, the centering of black life is going to be met with hostility, um, then we have to be asking ourselves some really fundamental questions about what it is that we're trying to do. And so ultimately I think I, you know, I went and I read, you know, Bernie Sanders's our revolution book and saw where, uh, he mentioned speaking in Seattle, but didn't mention getting uh, cut off by Marissa. Hmm. I think it's important to me to, to bring those questions to the forefront and people who think of themselves as very cosmopolitan, um, on the left. Um, I think you kind of, you sort of get the sense of where, the extents or limits of people's radicalism really is when you bring out somebody who's holding down um, a very, very clear uh, uh, ideological and self-presentational um, sort of gambit that puts black women at the center, puts women of color um, in specific at the center of political claims. And that's kind of a, a litmus test for where the rest of the left camp needs to go. I think it's also sort of this question of um, we've seen so many dog whistles from uh, black politicians, black intellectuals, black authors who uh, make use of all the social and intellectual capital of affiliating with the black freedom struggle. Um, but with the other side of their mouth, sort of let you know that they're not really actually going to be there for you when the temperature turns up a little bit too high mm -hmm. or from white progressives who, um, sort of let you know that they might go on Arsenio Hall and play the saxophone, but when it comes down to it, they're going to, um, announce the crime bill at Stone Mountain, Georgia, uh, a Ku Klux Klan stalwart. Mm -hmm. And so those symbols matter. So for me, it was important to get black people on the cover of my book. It was important to get a book that looked like it was designed uh, after a Black Lives Matter sweatshirt to have a black author um, be the foreword for the book. Um, so that even if uh, sort of the general black socialist project is the launching pad and the rest of the book goes out of it, we know what the, the grounding or the basis for this is just based on uh, some of sort of those early symbols that you get um, introduced to. And also as a result of uh, Marissa's reputation and her strength as a writer in the introduction. Right. And it really is a beautifully written um, preface here. One of the things that she says that really stuck with me, and I'm going to skip around a bit in terms of the quotations, but she, yeah. she notes at one point, nothing is as we thought it was or as it should be. And later says that 
Um, the realities of my life contradict the ideals and aspirations that I was taught as a child. Not only was I steeped in the propaganda of meritocracy against the background of worldly circumstances that proved otherwise, but then she goes on to explain, you know, her interracial family was seen as a symbol of progress, but at the same time, she was noting all of these things that were still behind. Um, mm -hmm. So in a lot of ways, her introduction is very much a quintessential packaging of what is happening for many millennials, which is we're, we're, we have a lot of hope, and I think we were raised to have a lot of hope. Um, and you talk about some of those socio-historical um, underpinnings, which we'll get to in a minute. But we're raised with a sense of hope, but at the same time, we're met with so many disappointments um, just based on the sort of economic issues that we're facing, racial issues that we're continuing to face. Um, mm -hmm. And I think it's a really sort of splash of cold water on our faces that you know, what we're taught in school, what we're taught in our own families isn't quite uh, the way things work out in the end. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a really good way of sort of setting up your argument and what you go on to say. So right. speaking of your book, uh, let's get into the meat and potatoes of it all. Um, can you tell the audience a little bit about what, first of all, what made you write this book? Um, mm -hmm. And then secondly, just sort of what the basic premise of the book is. Yeah. So uh, this book, um, the, I want to say, creative sort of uh, nervous system for it was formed in uh, late 2014, uh, which uh, many of us are going to remember, uh, I think, historically as sort of the, the time where uh, we watched on television as uh, Mike Brown's killer uh, went unprosecuted. Uh, the killer of Eric Garner, similarly exonerated of all charges. Um, it was a period in time where uh, the GOP was sort of cementing what eventually became uh, its successful presidential run two years later. Um, and somewhere in the middle of all that, I, I personally turned 30. And so it was a pretty um, very, very heady uh, sort of momentous time. And uh, for me, I think it was the experience of watching, in specific, um, the experience of watching, uh, I think it was a football game where the St. Louis Rams were playing. Maybe it was maybe it was Baltimore, maybe it was New Orleans, but in any case, St. Louis was playing. They were on the road. Uh, at the same time that they're sort of, you know, switching over to CNN to look at whether or not protesters in Ferguson, on um, the outskirts of St. Louis, were going to burn the city to the ground. Mm -hmm. And just this sort of high-low experience of, on the one hand, um, American entertainment and the Rams playing on a on a Monday or maybe it was a Thursday night. I know it was in the middle of the week, um, representing the city uh, on the road, and then back at home, uh, so many an out, you know a situation that was so obviously an outgrowth of caste prejudice and uh, the American case system of race. I think for me that was where. Um, the creative nervous system of the book was sort of formed in that I thought that if I could find a way to mix uh, sort of that extremely uh, ephemeral and ultimately trivial um, sort of sports spectacle with the tremendous weight um, of the actual realities of a place like St. Louis in this late capitalist context that um, somewhere in that vertigo and in that creative tension, um, I'd be able to spin out something that was at least an entertaining read as I sort of started to peel back the layers on like, um, you know, sort of started to do a little bit more deep internal work on what my motivations were as a writer and what personal well would I be drawing on, uh, 
to narr- to have a, a compelling narrative in this book and not just something that was creatively interesting. To me, uh, I sort of fell back on a lot of early experiences that I had as a millennial, someone who was born in 1984. My earliest memories in life are of sitting alone in front of the television, um, just sort of internalizing a lot of the pop culture that I saw, um, not quite knowing at that point in time that there was a reason why I was sort of forced to uh, be at home um, alone by myself in a situation, a a neoliberal context where uh, double income households were sort of on the rise. And so um, it's somewhere in there that I think the the book sort of started to come together. Now, the full title of the book, right, Millennials in the Moments that Made Us a Cultural History of the U.S. from 1982 to the Present, the central argument is basically that um, over the last 35 or so years, uh, capitalism has sort of undergone uh, a few uh, fundamental core changes that reflect um, that are reflected broadly in the popular culture that we consume and that a lot of the popular culture serves to reinforce uh, neoliberalism at the same time that some of it suggests ways out of it. So a lot of the book uh, is a reconstruction of the ways that American movies, television shows, books, music, etc., cetera, um, serve to reconstruct and legitimate the capitalist status quo. I think that's very much the story of the first six chapters. Mm-hmm. Um, and as we get into the latter six chapters, it veers a little bit more into the territory of thinking about ways that uh, popular culture uh, can suggest ways out of or suggest correctives or at least suggest ways of becoming more self-aware of uh, that neoliberal context. Right. I think, too, in your in your first few chapters, one of the things that I was interested in, as nerdy as this sounds, is actually with your playing around and really problematizing some of the definitions of millennials or millennialism, mm. right? Um, you go rather in depth in these first few chapters about or into, you know, how you define millennials. Um, you discuss geographic boundaries as well. So even though this is a discussion primarily of the U.S., um, mm. you kind of you sort of hint at a hint towards us that there is an an underlying story about international millennialism as well and something that's perhaps worth pursuing at a later date or in another book. Um, But then you also talk about a lot of the socio-historical and economic frameworks that are also being engaged in this process where you're talking almost entirely about pop culture. So if you Mm -hmm. could kind of lay out some of the theoretical um, background as well, that would be great. Yeah, so millennials, Millennials is a fraught term. I mean, 60% of people who are designated as millennials don't believe that they are millennials, right? That's kind of a, <laughs> just like a, a quintessential a conundrum of our generational condition in that um, a lot of us who are part of an age cohort who have experienced a lot of the same things, um, who have never known of, you know, a, a, a kind of capitalism that is not prone, not been prone to um, devastating uh, busts and uh, euphoric highs. We actually don't think that that, en masse, at least 60% of us don't think that that has actually had a uh, collective uh, determination on the worldview of an age cohort. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, as somebody who, if you're a cultural historian, and I think if you're doing something that is, uh, that veers on sociology, you're looking everywhere for the kinds of external determinants that might uh, play a role in the way that certain populations behave. And so I try to talk about the ways that um, millennials, capital M, uh, you can define that in a number of ways. I ultimately decide on 1982 because the guys that coined the term, uh, Neil Howe and William Strauss, uh, and did some of the first writing about uh, millennials as such, uh, that's when they say it started. There was a culture of uh, overprotectionism in regards to American children that started in or about 1982 or afterwards. 
um, that was born out in baby on board signs that was born out in, um, in a, in a Reaganomic, uh, content Reagan in, in, in an era of Reaganomics where big government was not mobilized to do much. One of the few things that it did in the 1980s was, uh, try to think about ways to, um, expand social security to, uh, include children that were born into poverty. Uh, we saw a lot of different, um, all sorts of ways that I cover in the first chapter of the book and that attitudes of child attitudes towards childhood, um, that had not been uh, in place before about 1982 or 83 are suddenly there by the, we get, by the time we get to the end of the decade mm -hmm. and we can quibble on the dates, right? Uh, Pew research center will, will tell you that it's 1981 to 1997. I think there are a few people that have made arguments about a liminal generation that was actually born between 1977 and 83 called exennials. Mm -hmm. And ultimately I think all of those things are very, very interesting, but my book is, kind of using millennials and generational politics and pop culture as a poison pill to really talk about capitalism. Like that's the thing that I'm fundamentally more interested, um, or I'm, that I'm fundamentally interested in discussing and that it so happens that uh, generational dynamics to me in this context are a kind of the, the, the best, most adequate container to talk about certain uh, transitions that happened, um, in American capitalism from 1945 to 1973 as a, an era that we can distinguish uh, from the one that took place from, say, 82 or 80 going forward. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, and I make this point in the book, that there are people that might not be millennials, capital M, but there are many populations, older populations, that are living through sort of a millennial uh, condition, lowercase m. And if you're a baby boomer, you're suddenly aging into what it means to uh, suddenly be subject to austerity, uh, the threat of social security being run on a for-profit privatized basis, uh, declining social protections. Uh, you can age into that millennial condition, but the fact remains that members of the millennial generation, capital M, have never known anything but that. I think that there's a part in the beginning as well, or sort of towards the beginning, where you talk a lot about the contradictions, the political contradictions that are going on in the years that we're we're children, basically, babies and children, right? Mm -hmm. So you see um, a lot of this talk about the family and a talk about the necessity of, you know, supporting one another and whatnot. But then you have this really aggressive, as you mentioned, austerity politics, aggressive um, ways of sort of rethinking masculinity to be hyper, hyper aggressive and, and mm -hmm. in a way that sort of alienates women um, or puts women in a particular place that's not super helpful or helpful looking forward. Um, mm -hmm. You also, I think on that note, you really do a great job of talking about or re, sort of re, re, reframing this political discussion as a discussion of gender, um, which I thought was really fascinating and a unique approach to talking about this. So obviously we can, we can talk all day about um, the way masculinity and femininity is, is rendered, but the way that mm -hmm. I think you do a great job of combining um, politics in there. And especially one, one of the images that stood out to me the most was when you started talking about foreign policy and you said that the U.S. itself was sort of um, being cuckolded, and you use, this is the word you use, um, being cuckolded by corporations that went elsewhere, um, and in particular that went to the third world, right? So Republican politicians mm -hmm. were sort of thinking, framing this discussion in, in, a, in sexual terms in some ways, um, even if metaphorical, but sort of this this process of someone from another country is stealing what's ours, first of all. And then mm -hmm. these corporations that they were obviously upholding were also leaving them to go to these places that we had previously, you know, sort of reduced to being uh, threats, to be honest. 
So. Yeah, and so um, the the first through the first sort of six chapters, I think there's a chapter called American Dad, another called American Mom, and another called American Siblings. And I think those three chapters taken together sort of are uh, sort of form the a lot of the creative nervous system of the first half of the book. Um, and this idea, I mean, we're talking about Mark Fisher earlier, the, you know, to circle back to this, it's kind of funny because Mark Fisher at an earlier stage for me, um, and still even today, just his general approach, a huge influence on me exiting the vampire castle, I think is, is something else altogether. But when we get around to talking about a book like capitalist realism pulled quite a lot from that book, as far as how to think about, um, uh, changes to capitalism in a symbolic sense. And I think that's where you sort of get this idea of, um, in the American dad chapter, thinking about the ways that masculine overcompensation, um, in response to, uh, the disloyalty of American corporations and sort of chasing after the private sector as the be all end all of public life. Um, uh, that started, sort of started to spin out there. I think in the, uh, the American mom section, um, it goes to a different place where we're thinking about the ways that, um, uh, American motherhood was being sort of redefined in um, a lot of different ways that I think suited the neoliberal project that had a need for women that were going to enter the American workforce um, and see it as a kind of liberation, even though it was probably going to be working for 65 cents on the dollar. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it comes down to that American sibling section, right? Talking about the ways that Generation X and Millennials, there's a really complex interplay between those two. And that when you have um, double income households where parents are forced to do more working for less pay, there's a lot of cultural boogeymen that sort of spring up um, and a culture of overprotectionism, overcompensation, fear about drugs and crime and uh, pornography and American uh, entertainment. And oftentimes Generation X as a block was sort of seen as the problem kid, right, by the American mom and the American dad, like the kid that um, we corrupted because we were way too permissive in the 70s. And in the 80s, you get this back to basics movement that says, um, you know, millennials, we're going to we're going to bring this generation up to be really a generation of um, kids that are going to redeem the mistakes that we thought that we made with Generation X. And I think all of this I try to frame in the book is just basically a diversion from um, a larger conversation we needed to be having about giving families more resources uh, so that um, maybe you didn't need to have both parents working or that maybe we had a paternal leave system, cultural expectations that maybe expected more caregiving from American men, any kind of collective or social um, question about how to go about the problem of the kid in this neoliberalism context, which was a problem about millennials those are sort of pushed to the side. And I think people look much more towards privatized uh, solutions as opposed to uh, political collective ones. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things that you mentioned in chapter five that sort of stuck with me as well is you, you have a few lines in there about Gen X two that stuck out in particular. One, you're, you're really framing the way that the boomers look to Gen X as sort of making money off the glamorization of Gen X's precarity. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are all these movies that come out where they're showing millennials living in big cities that are gentrifying and the neoliberal um, 
sort of conditions, but there, there's sort of a humor or a lightness, um, even a revelry in their suffering in some ways. Um, right. But then <clears throat> you, you go on and you talk about, uh, which is, again, another great example, Lisa Simpson and her relationship with her brother, Bart. So you basically mm. create the metaphor in which Lisa is seen as the millennial. She's more responsible. She's sort of um, putting Bart in his place all the time. And she's the one who's actually doing the work. Whereas Bart is just like, you know, skateboarding all day and saying crude things and his sister's always the one to kind of come around and fix things. And so I think that's a very clear example of what's happening in both the pop pop cultural and political landscape, uh, at least at this early period about what millennials are supposed to represent. Right. For sure. Um, but you, you go on from chapter six, uh, further, um, from, I guess after chapter five, once you, you hit chapter six, you start breaking in, um, you start entering a little bit of a different space. You talk more about race in these sections. Um, you start talking about more of the, you know, we pull us more into the present. Um, and if I'm not mistaken, it's around this chapter, around chapter six, chapter seven, where you start talking about the coming of age period for millennials, where we're mm-hmm. starting to, you know, um, finish high school, go into college. And I think this is really where your your strongest work is presented. You start talking about Jay-Z, about September 11th, um, about the, the changes even in rap music. Um, so if you could talk a bit about these, this sort of transitional part of the text, because I think for me, it's what stood out. And perhaps I'm biased because I too am a late millennial. So I right. was in high school when 9-11 happened and I recall all of these things um, with more clarity than perhaps some of the things that were happening when I was a little kid. So if you could talk a bit about this center section and some of the arguments that you present, why hip hop, why sports, um, what was it about these two particular uh, sociocultural activities that really stood out to you as emblematic of what millennials were facing? Right. Well, I mean, hip hop is, um, I, I guess, just can't kind of say enough about um, how just as a cultural form and as well as talking about individual records, like in one way or another, the approach that I sort of like that creative approach that you see in hip hop very much based on sampling um, hyper-political at the same time that it can be extremely flippant. Um, that's, that's passed out of just being a cultural form and into being kind of more of a sensibility that I think is transcended, um, just the records. And, um, I also feel sort of implicated in that cultural approach. And so it was only too fun to be able to sit down and remember, um, what the blueprint as a record of Jay-Z's that came out on 9-11 represented on uh, such a terrible day, I think it's sort of this idea that in American rap music at that point, we're sort of starting to see more of an emphasis on um, a cultural trend that had been uh, there all along, but I think that had been brought much more to the center, which is sort of the sense of, um, because I survived it, other people should have to survive uh, on their Uh, through their own trauma or through their own tragedy as well, right? At some point in time in, I think, 2003 or 2004, uh, you see Kanye um, talking on Through the Wire about turning tragedy into triumph. Hmm. Um, Beyonce, who is at this point hip-hop adjacent in 1999 or 2000, a song literally called Survivor. And it just so happens that a lot of these narratives are really, really well-suited to uh, being sort of a prism for understanding the way that... uh, capitalism was going to rebound after 9-11, and that very much an emphasis not on asking the question, why is it that people had to go through such desperate socioeconomic situations anyway, 
or why was it that people are sort of put in the situation of having to be survivors, but the glorification of surviving, the act of overcoming, uh, resilience as a cultural trope that I think is the, the theme that sort of dominates the chapters that run from seven, eight to nine. And I think that uh, cultural uh, sort of form or that cultural gust uh, has as much to do with just sort of the dynamics of how uh, people of color are disadvantaged under neoliberalism as much as it is the way that neoliberalism itself behaves, which is, um, as Milton Friedman would tell you, right, if you read The Shock Doctrine um, and many speeches that he um, gave going back as far as the 1970s, the idea of capitalism attaching itself to crisis so that it could then transcend those crises to emerge stronger so that free market reforms could come out uh, more at the forefront of American life after a recession, after a calamity, after a war, is really central to the way that neoliberalism behaves. And so uh, hip-hop occupies that really weird space where it's it's legitimating uh, sort of the, the cultural values of capitalism at the same time that it's begging a lot of these more uncomfortable questions, right? Jay-Z is a very um, inside-outside figure in maybe sort of the same way that Miles Davis was 40 or 50 years before him at the same time being very, very comfortable in the home of um, this broader capitalist project is all along asking a lot of questions that imply, even if they don't state, a sort of more radical politics. So um, that's sort of where um, those chapters from seven, eight to nine, which were um, seven and nine in particular, I think some of the, the funnest to write mm-hmm. um, I could see sort that. of went. Yeah. <laughs> I could feel it when I was reading it because I said, oh, this is this is where he's really starting to deepen the analysis and, and bring in some things that I think are really salient and stuck with me visually as well. You know, I had I had a very strong mental image of what you were talking about in these chapters. Um, right. in there, and I particularly appreciated your breakdown in chapter seven of the timeline for 9-11. So this is super fascinating. I thought this is a great uh, sort of rhetorical device that you use in the book. What you end up doing is you sort of say, or not sort of, you literally you literally break down the Today Show that was showing right. on the day of 9-11. So you start with the opening and you talk about, you know, um, its ratings and the like and sort of the quotidian drivel that they often dealt with. Uh, <laughs> but the way that you portray it later as you as you get closer and closer to the attack on the Twin Towers is you're starting to really un, sort of uncover the neoliberalism that's floating at, up to the surface, right? right. And, and things that just <clears throat> seem sort of innocuous. Um, you know, they're talking about, uh, they have, I believe, uh, Harry Belafonte on as a guest that morning, um, and he's talking about a particular set of music um, that he was um, focusing on for the interview with Katie Couric, if I'm not mistaken. Um, right. And you have a quotation there where you say, Black music, like the spirituals of the long road to freedom, which is the the box set, I believe, or video that he was promoting, um, mm-hmm. and the bombastic raps of Jay-Z's The Blueprint, serve neoliberalism. If individuals from historically marginalized groups can rise to the ranks of pop culture prominence, capitalism is able to appear as an inclusive and fair social order that rewards hard work. Blacks who cannot become success stories are stigmatized as somehow personally deficient. And I immediately at that time also thought of, um, 
you know, what Michelle Alexander spends a lot of the latter half of her book talking about, which is this idea of black excellence and sort of how it in and of itself is um, deceptive in a lot of ways, because we have these two contradicting messages. On the one hand, you have people suffering under deindustrialization, still recovering from the austerity of the 80s and into the 90s. Um, and then you also mentioned, for example, all of the companies like GE that were laying off employees, although GE ironically would become super rich after uh, the war started because they were right. a contractor um, for the war. And so you're, yeah. you have all of these contradictions of, of massive success or seeming success on the one hand, people like Oprah, Jay-Z, arguably uh, Obama, and then you have the reality on the other side that is a completely different story. People are suffering, and it's happening at the same time, but only right. one of those sides tends to be, um, well, I guess both sides are focused on, but basically one is used as a foil to the other. Why aren't right. you poor people getting your shit together and making it like the rest of us? Right. And um, and it's, it's something that... Um, W.E.B. Du Bois' birthday is actually today, and so I saw a few, you know, sort of clips circulating today on Friday. We're recording this, the, the 23rd of February, and it's something that he actually anticipated as early as the um, the mid-20th century. He was sort of talking about what we now recognize as neoliberal narratives that elevate exceptional people of color who um, were able to transcend, quote-unquote, race prejudice through their individual initiative. Mm-hmm. Um and as a socialist, he was, you know, pretty blunt in saying that that was a counter-revolutionary sort of cultural representation. It didn't help. He was not a fan. Um, but yeah, I mean, the 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 I think the seventh chapter, the part where uh, it's sort of going through and talking about the nine eleven timeline, it's like um, it starts at like probably like eight a.m. or something like that, and goes all the way down to um, uh, the moment that the first tower is hit and through. Um, there was actually a really great book called uh, television by Raymond Williams, where he sort of talked about um, one of the things that we don't do enough as cultural critics. And he actually wrote this the year that the, the towers were put up in 74 is, is like this idea of culture or popular culture is sort of a seamless system. Television in particular is a seamless system, kind of a river that you can step into or out of, but that even when you turn the TV off, it's always flowing. Mm. Um, and so commercials and the sitcoms and the news and the, the channel promos, all of those things are part of um, the cultural programming of that given um, episode of viewing. You're getting messages that reinforce one another without maybe all the ways of knowing it. And so um, I, it was just kind of a gamble creatively in some ways, like maybe there's something to this. Like maybe if I sit down and watch the today show in the hours leading up to, or in the 90 minutes leading up to nine 11, I'm going to find something in here that um, enforces the ways that people thought about nine 11 afterwards. And within 15 or 20 minutes, it just became really, really clear that I think all the scholars that have been doing um, research about resilience and about um, uh, Robin James, I think of in particular, who's written a great book for zero books as well. Um, people who have done a lot of critical thinking about the notion of resilience in like Naomi Klein's The Shot Doctrine, they were super onto something because those narratives were everywhere to the point where there's a lot of stuff in that chapter that I had to kind of cut out, but mm-hmm. that still kind of made the point, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's very, it's so, I think like reflecting back on it, you know, looking at all of this in retrospect, you really feel it and you see it. But I think at the time, because we're living within it, right, it doesn't, as you said, it's, it's almost like this TV in and out where you, you don't quite... I don't know, it's so pervasive that you don't quite uh, digest what's happening. 
And then right. when you can kind of look back at it and you see especially the aftermath and the, the consequences of this type of thinking and how poorly it, it works. I mean, it's, it's completely a failure, right? Um, mm-hmm. And I think especially now after a lot of what's gone on, at, you know, towards the end of the Obama administration and now we have Trump, I think it really kind of knocks some sense into people into thinking like, okay, maybe things weren't as perfect as we thought. Maybe this type of approach to poverty um, that we could bootstrap our way out of of the situation that we were living through, maybe that doesn't quite add up. And maybe there are problems with that, um, despite the fact that there are people who look like us on the television screen who are singing its praises, right? Right. Um, and speaking of Obama, who I can't, I can't leave out because you do have a chapter or several chapters where you talk about him. But um, again, some of the latter chapters, you start to really talk about Obama. And again, this bootstrapping comes up in ways that I think for many of us who look to Obama as this hopeful figure, um, when you sort of look at the underside and you see some of the things that he was saying, again, in retrospect, it all begins to sort of make sense why we're in the predicament that we are today and still economically. Um, Mm -hmm. There's a section where you talk about uh, his relationship with Michael Jordan, which is really fascinating. Uh, You mentioned that he had actually asked Michael Jordan to help with campaign donations in 2008. But prior to that, he'd made a statement. Um, You say here, then Senator Obama had lambasted black children who spent their money on Air Jordan sneakers instead of books in an an ESPN segment from 2002. And again, sort of the, (laughs) the early days of Obama, we don't talk about as much. But within your book, you show all the contradictions of his politics as well. So on the mm-hmm. one hand, you have this kind of, you know, this moment where he's he's basically taking a, a jab at poor people. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in the other, other parts of the book, you have him sort of calling out uh, some of the austerity measures and the like. So it's, it's, it's this double-sided figure that we can't, I think even in the present, sometimes it's hard for us to fully wrap our heads around. And I think you right. did a great job of at least laying the, the groundwork for thinking about that. Right. Um, I think it, it's one of those things where I think the the nature, the the mixed nature of Obama's identity that people talk about, quote unquote, mixed is um, something that has been sussed through a lot more than uh, the mixed nature, so to speak, of his ideological um, sort of bent mm-hmm. as somebody who, on the one hand, um, pays as much tribute as he possibly can as he possibly can at every opportunity to civil rights struggles of the past, the symbolic march on uh, Selma that he did on uh, in 2015 to commemorate the original uh, march in the civil rights era, um, you know, sort of the praise that he has for uh, civil rights athletes like Bill Russell and, uh, and Fannie Lou Hamer, who he name-checked on the campaign trail in 2008, on the left hand, and then with the right hand, the fact that, you know, the guy taught at the University of Chicago, which was like literally the petri dish for neoliberalism right. and absorbed <laughs> a lot more of those ideas than people give him credit for. I mean, people were trying to call it out in 2008. Like, I don't think you understand that on economic issues, we're not getting what we now think of as sort of the Bernie platform. Like, this is going to be a lot of race blind, colorblind, rising tide lifts all boats sort of mentality. And when you get to the point where Obama's talking explicitly about how much of a fan of the free market is free market he is in 2008, um, you know, appoints a guy who eulogized Milton Friedman to his economic cabinet, all of those things in retrospect, they become a lot clearer that we fo- we spent a lot of time focusing on the dual nature of Obama's black and white identity, where I think, and I think that that's an important story. 
I think an, an, an undertold story or an underemphasized story is um, the position that he occupies as somebody who has an intense awareness of civil rights struggle, who listened to Malcolm X phonographs when he was young, patterned his speaking style after him even, and then um, grew up to really reach the halls of uh, American capitalism, become an exemplar of it um, to such an extent that he turned around and said that people who were asking him to prosecute uh, bankers in the aftermath of the Great Recession were uh, wanting him to govern out of anger, and we need to take a cool-headed, more rational approach. I think all of those things, that that part of it um, is, to me, anyway, a much more complicated, less-told story than sort of the way that we tend to focus more on his identity as the fulcrum of um, his presidency and his stature as a public figure. Right. And a, another less told story that you go into a little bit uh, in your book that I think is really fascinating is one about the place or the role of money as compensation for racial and economic animus. Um, you mentioned in passing sort of in the same chapter where you're talking about Obama that while you're working this sort of lowland job, I think you had, you had you were no longer able to afford college, right? And you were sort of working to make ends meet. And right. you noted that you felt like the tips that you got were sometimes the attempts by some people who were tipping you to say, well, okay, he's clearly having it rough. Let's give a little tip here <laughs> and there. It'll help compensate for whatever whatever world problems there are. It's like this moment of charity where we can sort of fix things, right? right. Um, and while we're talking about Obama, I just, I immediately thought of a lot of the dialogue that's been going on around Black Panther. So spoiler alert, I haven't actually seen it, but I've read a lot of the, the reviews. Um, right. And if I'm not mistaken, one of the characters, if not Black Panther himself, right, uh, forms an NGO or sort of like helps kids in poor neighborhoods in California at the end right. of the film. And right. a lot of people have made, drawn parallels between uh, the Black Panther character and Obama, particularly within this this. Uh, you know, his attempt to kind of give back, but in a way that's very superficial. Um, right. And I immediately just thought of, of, you know, some of the things that you talk about here in your own relationship to money and charity at this point in your life. And we could obviously easily extend that to talking about the place of NGOs under neoliberalism. Um, you don't go in a ton about NGOs, but I'd be curious to hear what you think about um, nonprofit organizations, particularly in black communities, their connection to neoliberalism. And also perhaps what is your take on reparations and does reparations fit somewhere um, in this discussion as well as perhaps a flawed approach or at least somewhat flawed approach, one that needs to be deepened uh, mm -hmm. to address racial and economic inequality? I have to say that um, I guess every um, person who's an author, every writer, every scholar uh, has a moment that they can sort of look back on when their sort of intellectual awakening or their journey started as a critical thinker. And for me, it was undoubtedly um, Randall Robinson in the early 2000s came out with a book called The Debt, um, What America Owes to Blacks. That was a polemic in favor of the concept of reparations. Um, and part of it is the destination, but it's also the way that he sort of in that book went through um, all the ways in which the American social project has despoiled uh, people of color, African Americans in specific, not just in the course of 246 years of slavery, but also talking about the aftermath of that, Jim Crow in the American South, and then also uh, the impact that segregation, I think, has had on depressing black wealth accumulation in this capitalist context. Mm -hmm. um, for me was incredibly formative. And so I think about the ways that we're, we're sort of at a stage where we're not, our, our, our political imagination is such where we don't have much one, right? We're not really 
uh, encouraged to think much in the direction of what can we do collectively to fix a collective problem that we created as a collective. Um, and instead, a lot of the uh, energy that in a former era, as recently as um, the mid 20th century, we sort of started to at least get in the direction of thinking about how are we going to, as a, as a state, as a political system, as a system, as a set of government directives, how are we going to downwardly redistribute wealth? How are we going to mobilize the power of the state to create jobs? How are we going to create a social safety net that keeps people from sliding too far into poverty? And also, how are we going to create a tax ceiling that, that prevents uh, American corporations from being able to get ahead um, at the expense of workers? That framework has really kind of gone the way of the dodo bird at this point. And I think NGOs and nonprofit actors, non-state actors in the form of um, nonprofits and whatnot have, uh, they, they sort of, at the same time that they address problems created by neoliberalism and may do very, very good work in fixing a few of them, although we could have another conversation about um, exploitation in the nonprofit sector. Mm -hmm. um, they ultimately serve to reaffirm a few basic assumptions about how the state and capital are supposed to um, behave in regards to its most vulnerable populations, which is they're not, right? right. We have a general expectation that they're not going to do much. Institutions are broken. Um, capitalism is... A flawed system. And so the best bet that you can really have is to just make as much money as you possibly can. And then when you get around to it, uh, you give back, quote unquote. It's actually something that you sort of see a little bit in, in, in kind of this, the movie, I know we're talking about Obama and um, uh, sort of the 2000s context, but I, I first started, sort of started to notice this in like the movie Ghostbusters, the mm. 1984 one, where it's like, um, why is this movie putting so much energy into letting us know that the cops can't do anything, the EPA can't do anything, <laughs> the mayor is hapless? It's like all the institutions are completely bankrupt, and it just is up to um, what amounts to a kind of scrappy nonprofit team to just sort of put it together for themselves. Right. And so at the same time that they're fixing this problem, they're also smart businessmen. Um, it doesn't work for me. I think <laughs> I think the failures of that approach are... Um, pronounced and at this point pretty well documented to where if you're not, you're somebody who's in the public eye and you're not talking about mustering uh, the political will to do what we need to do as far as taxation is concerned, um, you're not advocating for workers to organize and struggle on their own behalves. Um, I think we're, we're talking about nibbling around the edges. We need we need to get pretty serious here about collective solutions. Right. And I think that there's, there's a big part of your book as well where you, you talk about the... The, the focus of the individual or focus on the individual under neoliberalism. And in particular, um, if we think about millennials, there's this fascinating uh, trope that you talk about that comes up as well. So while on the one hand, neo, uh, millennials are demonized, they're shown as lazy and good for nothings, and they're all you know going back to their parents' homes, they don't want to work, etc. Um, at the same time, you have another narrative that comes up in that that millennials themselves are writing saying, no, actually, you know, we're struggling on, under the economic conditions that you left us. We're working for free half the time. We don't have, you know, stable income. We don't have a safety net. And from that, oddly, in response to these calls for actual assistance and support on a systemic level, the response by the press is <laughs> to sort of uh, focus only on individual millennials that have made it and gotten super famous, gotten super rich, um, and sort of placing all of their bets 
bets on those particular individuals. Um, right. So those that you speak of in particular, one that comes up quite a bit, which you're more than welcome to go into because I think this is fascinating as well. You talk a lot about how LeBron James comes to symbolize um, certain aspects of neoliberalism as the sort of millennial hero. Um, And you also talk quite a bit, which gives us an avenue into thinking about feminism. You talk a lot about Aziz Ansari, although I think when you wrote this, it was certainly before the recent controversy about him. Right. Um, But it's a precursor. And you also talk a lot about Drake. So if you could discuss a little bit more this idea of the sports figure, the rapper, and the sort of, I don't know, safe, safe, uh, quasi-feminist dude... I don't know what we would even call Aziz Ansari at this point, but uh, at I, this I mean, time, other better. other than a other than a creep. I mean, right, the guy, yeah. <laughs> even before all this stuff came out, he yeah. they had him on a, in some interview or another where he was sticking up for uh, Louis C.K., who even himself stepped down and apologized and said, you know, I, I behaved in really really terrible ways as a guy and as a guy in 1980, and I think. Anzari sort of went behind him and apologized, or um, was an apologist for him. The significance of LeBron in some ways is almost, it's like extremely on the nose to the point where if you just sort of look back on the details, it's like my job as a cultural historian is to sort of try to make certain things that seemed um, really, really innocuous, like a little bit more obvious. And in LeBron's case, it was actually, that was a pretty easy project just because of where he came from, like this middle America town in Ohio and um, the fact that uh, recession and the specter of recession and the specter of the neoliberal turn in one facet or another just shadowed his career from the beginning. Mm-hmm. It's like impossible to talk about him as a basketball player without talking about him in connection to this particular region that has come to symbolize a lot of the failures of capitalism. Um and so he also I think represented and so at the same time that he encapsulated that sort of um, sort of narrative stew, there are a lot of ways in which uh, attitudes about millennials as people who are always looking for a handout or looking for the easy way out, who don't have, um, who are very narcissistic and don't have uh, an understanding of an import of what it means to have a work ethic, all of these sort of general attitudes that um, have been levied onto millennials as we started to age in the 2000s, you really see those come to the forefront in um, criticisms that people have about LeBron James's career. So at one point in time, uh, I think it's in section nine C of the book. Like I just kind of just try to get down to basics and talk about, you know, this is what this is really about. Like this, this conversation about LeBron James and people talking about him being, um, you know, somebody who doesn't have much of a work ethic and somebody who's a whiner is really a function of attitudes about, uh, how to apportion resources under neoliberalism. And that, that discussion is also a general function of a conversation about uh, the attitude that the state is supposed to have to American minorities vis-a-vis austerity measures. And that we got to a, we got, we got to a certain point collectively where we just decided if you're not able to make it um, on your own, that there must be something individually wrong with you. And so anytime anybody is sort of doing anything that seems like a cry for help or seems like I need some support here in achieving what I'm doing, it could be somebody talking about the social safety net not being uh, present, or it could be LeBron saying, you know, maybe I can't um, win as the only superstar on my team or as the only, for a lot of those years, like kind of the only A-list basketball player on my team, I need a little bit of help with this. A lot of the same kinds of attitudes get rehearsed for both of those scenarios. And so sports becomes kind of this arena 
where people are able to polish uh, racial and economic attitudes that in any other context would appear as transparently insensitive, transparently cruel, but because they happen or because they're exercised in the direction of uh, sport and competition, um, they're given much more of a pass or they're seen just as opinions rather than as ideology, which is what I think they are. With respect to uh, Drake and Aziz Ansari, uh, what sort of starts to happen in chapter 10, I think is, I try to think a little bit of the way, a little bit about ways that um, male uh, feelings and male sensitivity and a general sense of a softer, kinder, gentler male really just becomes the avenue for reinforcing male supremacy of one kind or another. And um, suddenly, um, in much the same way that I think uh, many white people learn to uh, put forward their feelings as an avenue to re-intensify uh, a racial status quo or a racial hierarchy, uh, men like um, and I want to differentiate between uh, Drake's music and who he is as a person, like mm-hmm. some of the sentiments that you get uh, through his music are what a buddy of mine over drinks once called uh, yet more dick centered, dick centered sensitivity, right? It's sensitivity, but it's all going still in the direction of trying to place the male at the center and male dominance at the center of any uh, social interaction. Mm-hmm. And so having somebody who's a little bit more receptive to an idea of intersectionality or having a guy know what emotional labor means does not necessarily mean that they're going to be uh, in a position to actually implement those in any way that actually does anything to dis- to dismantle um, patriarchy. And so um, that's kind of the, the, just where you know, chapter 10 and talking about millennial men and millennial manhood goes is just begging, um, authors are begging the begging readers and begging the question of, you know, what are we doing in our personal lives to use feeling and sentiment, um, to sort of reinforce sort of these hard edge structures that are as old, uh, at this point as, um, humankind. Um, so I think your comments here are apt, especially in thinking about the fact that, you know, there is sort of this turn I've seen where people are embracing the language of feminism or the language of anti-racism, but there isn't necessarily a full embrace and practice of um, the act of being feminist or the act of being (laughs) anti-racist. A lot of it's just a performance um, more so than an actual um, complete understanding of what actually needs to be done in the process of undoing some of these barriers that women and people of color face in our society. I think this part of the book is also really interesting, the fact that you decide to delve, jump into these waters of feminism. Um, You lean pretty heavily on authors like Andy Zeisler, who's been very critical of what she calls, quote-unquote, marketplace feminism, or the use and co-optation of feminist ideology by neoliberalism to make it sort of this repackaged, consumable um, idea more than an ideology and way of life. Um, Mm -hmm. If you could talk a bit about that, and then I'd also like to hear more from you about Hillary Clinton and some of the popular, um, at least nominal feminists that embraced her during election 2016. Right. And, you know, this is, I think, some of the the territory where I have the least amount of uh, embodied perspective. Um, And so I think uh, doing, making sure to do sort of my due diligence as somebody who has uh, an intuitive sense of just the general ways in which the rhetoric of um, margin, the rhetoric uh, of marginalized populations is sort of used to pivot into actually pretty retrograde 
measures, it was really important to me to sort of go out and find, to augment that sense with people who have actually done a lot of the work. And so Andy Ziesler's book, uh, We Were Feminists Once, was uh, hugely influential for me in this regard. Um, more broadly, I think um, Kimberly Crenshaw's uh, writing about intersectionality uh, is sort of a shadow over this entire um, chapter. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was sort of through kind of, and, and also I think about um, Arlie Hochschild's work in the, the earlier 1980s, in particular her book, The Managed Heart, uh, where she coins the term emotional labor, which I'm sure had been pointed towards by uh, scholars of color and women of color before then, um, she sort of puts it in a, a single volume sort of um, sense in this book and in the managed heart. And so it was sort of through 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 doing that research and sitting and living with the subject matter that I sort of uh, started um, to arrive at more of an internalized sense where it was not necessarily there um, naturally because it is not an embodied experience that I inhabit in much the same way that I think um, I'm able to talk a lot more naturally about um, race in the United States or the position of the social position of somebody like LeBron James. I think there's avenue to relate experientially in ways that there um, were less of when talking about the um, sort of uh, women in the context of American neoliberalism. All of that said, I don't I don't say any of that to be an apologia, right? I mean it to say um, it's really a situation where I think, in much the same way that you can have. Uh, uh, sort of the the rhetoric of the black power struggle get upcycled and reappropriated in ways that actually despoil uh, black li- black life in some pretty terrible ways. It's also true that um, feminism as a cultural movement, one of the things that you lose uh, when it becomes a cultural movement is some of that political um, gust. And so people think of it as something more that uh, feminism more is something that you can buy or some words that you can use or sort of a way that you can comport yourself on social media as opposed to a way of thinking about emotional labor, maybe ways of putting in a little bit extra, even a little bit of extra work in your interpersonal relationships um, to downwardly redistribute emotional capital that you might have as a man or as an able-bodied person. And so that's sort of where, um, and so that's that's kind of the general framework for chapter 11, Millennial Woman, right? And then it's also trying to think about ways that popular culture um, calls attention to that condition, right? Thinking about popular, um, thinking about pop music uh, as pop music as praxis, right? The music of somebody like Solange or the music of somebody like Cardi B, the poetry of somebody like Jenny Zhang, um, people that are um, women and that are sort of in the public eye that are doing a lot to indicate that uh, women are in just as much in need of care as women are used to uh, throwing in the direction of men. Mm-hmm. And that also... Uh, women are exhausted under neoliberalism and because of it, as a result of having to uh, expend certain kinds of emotional energy at work and then actually do similar kinds of work at home. Um, there's a great book that came out uh, by Maura Wagle called uh, Labor of Love. I think it's the subtitles like The Invention of Modern Dating, where she like goes through and actually compares uh, the experience of modern dating um, and saying it's really not all that different from sort of the act of going on LinkedIn and um, trying to find professional connections. And that dating for many uh, millennial women is kind of like a, a similar kind of requires a similar level of emotional labor as being an unpaid intern uh, in the gig economy might. And so all of these kinds of ways that, you know, sort of the, the um, using the concept of emotional labor as sort of an avenue to talk about um who tends to have to put in more kinds of care labor? And when that burden 
um, is put in, who is more disadvantaged um, as a result of labor becoming sort of uh, a transactional, emotional labor becoming uh, a transactional piece? Like what impact does that have on the mental health, material conditions, et cetera, um, of American women? And what does it look like when you have um, a generation of, uh, of women who's really not known anything but that? So really quickly on that note, there was one part of the book where you talk about Ali Wong, who's a comedian, and she had a, I think she she was on a TV show in the past, and then she recently did a comedy special for Netflix um, right. called Baby Cobra or something, correct? Um, right, right. Which I actually saw, I saw a few years ago, and I don't remember much of it, but you talk a bit about how she's rather, she has this sort of vulgar humor, um, and you, you align her humor with a lot of the criticism that people like Arielle Levy makes in her book, Female Chauvinist Pigs. Um, mm-hmm. You note in particular that Ali says she wants to lie down, not lean in. Uh, right. Which obviously, I mean, she's making a joke on Sheryl Sandberg's work, which has been panned very pretty broadly by leftists and people who see it as sort of a neoliberal mantra for feminism. Right. Um, but I thought this was interesting because, especially with all of this talk about how women have second, third, and fourth shifts, and then emotional labor, and all these things on top of the, the general labor that we're performing now that we are mm. very, you know, closely linked to the workforce, the formal workforce, I should say, not the informal. Um, it's just fascinating, because I'm like, I'm kind of with her. I'm like, I want to lie down. Right. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> I do want to take a break. I, I think that I didn't read her line so much as uh, a critique of, of what Cheryl Sternberg is saying, so much as it is like, we are tired though, right? Like there is, right. there is a degree at which you have to say, there's a point where you have to say enough is enough. I need to relax. I need to have someone take care of me. I need to have someone do this labor for me. And she's pregnant during the, the, the sketches itself or the comedy special itself. So it sort of makes it even more perfect that she's like, right. I just want right, to lie right. down. So, yeah, no, I, and it's not the first time that, um, an obtuse guy sort of mixed the, missed the joke and missed, uh, <laughs> what was really being called attention to there. And um, that's actually up until right now, I had not seen um, sort of that internal contradiction between the way um, that I sort of deal with Baby Cobra as a special and sort of earlier points that are being made about uh, sort of the disproportionate, um, like what what, what happens when people are expending more care labor than they're receiving. Mm -hmm. It's just going to lead to fatigue. And so that's point taken. I think when uh, when Zero Books comes to me and says, you know, your book is sold really well, it's time to do a second edition edition of this thing that that might be the first section that I go back in and try to do some uh some rethinking about so point well taken (laughs) I mean it was sort of I I saw it as almost like a you know with all this talk about UBI right I think the idea of women's additional layers of labor in addition to their you know nine to fives or eight to sixes or whatever they are um it's almost like a, a, a moment of asking for rest as that UBI you know like for those who don't know what I'm talking about universal basic income right this sort of guaranteed uh, financial safety net. I think for some for some women, myself included, sometimes we just want like an emotional safety net of just being able right. to relax and like not have to take right, care right. of everyone else. Um, but yeah, I, I think this this section about uh, feminism is really interesting and just like women's um, position in connection to neoliberalism and the ways that some women, especially uh, some of the singers you mentioned, like Beyonce, like Cardi B, like Rihanna, mm-hmm. uh, like Nicki Minaj, all of whom sort of take center stage in this chapter, this later chapter. Um, it's really fascinating when you comp- compare and contrast what their sort of social and political project is, even though it's it's often dismissed. Um, mm-hmm. The way that you sort of talk about that in contrast to people like Lena Dunham, um, who I would love to get your 
you know, your opinions on, you talk a bit about her in the book, but um, thinking a lot about, again, 2016 with Clinton and sort of mm-hmm. what we were told about her as a feminist icon by these other women who fashioned themselves or have been fashioned by society as feminist icons, where do they fit into this larger discussion, not only of millennialism, if you will, um, Mm -hmm. in the millennial historical moment, but also neoliberalism? We should be in a situation where we're critical of any kind of uh, market solution to a public problem. I think we've seen enough of it. We've seen quite a lot of it. If you have to Nonetheless, we live in a capitalist context, and I think while we're still patronizing this context, while some of us are thinking about patronizing and matronizing it, and others of us are um, thinking of ways to dismantle it, even as we're stuck in the middle of it, um, sort of the best that we can do while we're um, consuming its symbols and consuming its spectacles, I think, is looking at popular cultural representatives that beg social questions and that beg a context or a set of solutions outside of the market oriented and start to enter into the social and enter into the political, um, pop culture representations that take it right up to that line where it suddenly becomes clear that we're not going to get all of our answers in and as a result of popular culture, but that some real kind of mobilization and hard questions outside of this sort of cultural sphere are going to be required, um, is something that we should move in the direction of. And so I look at, um, uh, black female uh, popular, um, you know, sort of paragons of popular music as examples of this gust that uh, Andy Zeser actually talks about a little bit in her book, right? That Mm -hmm. at a certain point in time, the signs and symbols of popular culture, they're just really not going to be enough. But while we're here, um, women like Cardi B, who, you know, at one point in time was uh, a sex worker and is very, very open about sort of um, everything that she's gone through individually, socially, it, it begs the question of the positionality of why is it that people have to go through this, number one. And number two, for people that are in similar straits and for people who have to make similar hard kinds of decisions, um, it's tremendously reaffirming and is itself a kind of care labor, I think, that people are not accustomed to receiving mm-hmm. in their private lives. And so for many people who might not have the same embodied experience as somebody like Cardi B or for somebody who thinks that... Rihanna appears unprofessional or somebody who doesn't understand why Beyonce is so mad all the time and, you know, making visual quotations to the Black Panthers at uh, the halftime show of Super Bowl 50. People need to get, like, there's a lot of uh, comforting and coddling that I think uh, we're sort of accustomed to receiving and the representations that we patronize and that one of the reasons why um, these representatives of popular culture are so... um, are elevated as much and venerated as much by their fan bases as they are is not for cultural reasons as much as it is for political reasons. We don't see many black women who are able um, to speak openly about surviving uh, domestic abuse. We don't see that many black women talking about explicitly um, what it's like to be dependent on antidepressants, like the, the just the riff, the general riff that we were talking about with Ali Wong of just being tired. It's not something that we see represented a lot. And so it becomes a lot of these popular um, culture figures start to assume an importance that is really not merely cultural, but becomes political in ways that I think are actually pretty useful for asking larger questions about um, capitalism. Right. And I, I, you know, I think that your discussion as well about 
um, within the book at least, with regard to the place of identity as we move forward in politics is really important. So obviously we just talked Mm -hmm. about, you know, black women and their relationship with some of these um, questions of life under capitalism and life under neoliberalism in particular. I wonder then, and this is my final question, although I have many more to ask that I may have to just ask you off air one day. Um, Awesome. But I, you know, I, one of the things that I thought was interesting is, you know, in this latter chapter, you, or last chapter, I should say, you talk a lot about election 2016. Um, and I noticed that Bernie is not super present in this discussion. You talk more about uh, Clinton and Trump in the general election. Although mm-hmm. you do admit that you yourself uh, canvassed for Bernie. And like, I admit that I voted for Bernie and I also, um, you know, did some phone banking and things like that. But right. I saw him as during the primaries, at least as a lesser evil, but already a lesser evil because I see myself as pretty far to the left of him. Right. Um, and I'm wondering then, what is there, I mean, what do you see happening for 2020? You know, we some people have mentioned that Bernie is most likely going to run again. Um, mm-hmm. And at the same time, while we're hearing these sort of whispers of him perhaps running again, I'm seeing some people ramp up with their no discussions of identity. Only This is only about class, sort of this class reductionist take. Um, right. That is really surprising considering some of the unforced errors that he made in 2016. So I'd be curious to know what you think about uh, the election space going forward and where you see millennials, particularly considering their rather disproportionate support of Bernie Sanders. Uh, right. where do you, what do you see happening going forward with this? It's it's pretty wild. I mean, I think about um, the fact that at one point in time, Bernie had a tour of Southern colleges. He had a tour of like seven uh, Southern historically black colleges and universities that he just like canceled at one point. Um, then obviously the optics of Marissa interrupting him, the fact that he wasn't the fact of the optics of Marissa protesting during his speech. Um, and then just the fact that he was not, I think is forthcoming and the the language I think that we're in the ling- linguistic register that I think liberals, um, are more, uh, adept at co-opting in regards to racial justice mm-hmm. did not come so naturally to him as a candidate. And so what you, what you sort of look for is you hope that, um, if you're on, if you're on the actual left, not the nominal left, you, you hope for a number of things, right? You hope that, um, these reports that we're seeing about Democrats spending more money in 2018, not just 2020, but 2018 as well, spending a ton of money to actually in some areas, spending more money to defeat uh, challengers from the left than they are to defeat challengers to the right. Mm -hmm. You hope that that's an unsuccessful project, number one. And you, number two, I guess more um, uh, idealistically, you sort of hope that there were some internal lessons that um, while we're stuck en masse with the Democrats and those of us who are in DSA are building uh, a social alternative, uh, that a socialist alternative that is going to be able to address um, our condition from the left, while Democrats en masse are sort of um, generally a repository for a lot of left energy, you hope that there were some lessons learned uh, about why uh, 2016 ended in a spectacular failure. And I guess it kind of just goes to the larger point that if anybody thinks that the reason why uh, Democrats lost was because they spent too much time talking about police reform, they spent too much time talking about um, you know, differently gendered folks or the disabled, or they spend too much time talking about identity. Uh, I think that, you know, the, a person who would have that line of thinking is, is really going to be in a, in, a, in for a rude awakening when you just, you know, take a look at even a nominal, 
a nominal glance at how the Democratic Party historically has survived, which is exactly as a repository for uh, the needs and uh, addressing the concerns of uh, the subaltern, to put it one way. And um, I guess I kind of hope I look at, you know, I sort of see Kamala Harris and Cory Booker sort of sitting out there and I sort of um, just sort of loathe the idea that somebody like Cory Booker in particular right. <laughs> um, is going to be able to occupy any kind of left space with any kind of credibility. Um, but, you know, we're, I think a lot of times on the left, because things are so obvious to us and so clear and so, um, so formed in, you know, years and years and hours and hours of study and internalized parsing over our ideas, speci specifically POC leftist, it seems so obvious to us that this guy is a ruse. Right. Um, but we over, I think we underestimate the extent to which the optics and a little bit of um, rhetoric goes towards making somebody who um, is a suit uh, appear like a man of the people. And I think that's what we're going to kind of decide in, uh, in 2020. And the run up to 2018, I think, is going to be a, a real indicator for a lot of that. But um, I just I just can't talk about how happy I would be to see Cory Booker take an L, um, <laughs> especially as somebody who has like a romantic, still a little bit of a romantic connection, not to the Obama administration, but to the Obama campaigns mm -hmm. and what those represented in the way of a promise. Um, even if the, the, it, it was very much a dream deferred, I think all of that, all of that rhetoric and all of those symbols of, um, you know, we can sort of do this if we summon the political will, I think is important. Um, and I think about a quote that Hegel had, uh, you know, or that Marx had about Hegel, where he sort of said that, um, you know, all great historical events appear twice, right? The first time is tragedy. The second time is farce. I think the Obama years were definitely a tragedy and I'm not looking forward to the farce of, uh, of a Cory Booker, uh, presidency, if that's what comes to pass in 2020. Mm -hmm. I, I totally lied, by the way. I have one more question. This is just oh, okay. what happens. <laughs> Um, of course. I do have one more question, and it's some, it's based a bit on, on what you said here, but also what you've said in not only your book, but I believe in the article that you wrote as well um, in Defense right. of Callout Culture. One of the things that you've mentioned is the fact that, you know, if we are um, going to sort of pitch leftism to a specific group, why is our focus on that of those who are antagonizing the group that's already the base, right? Um, right? So I think that there was a discussion that you've had or that you've, you know, an issue that you've raised about um, sometimes not people, some people seeming not to recognize that the people who are already voting Democrat, who already have a really strong left history, um, ideologically speaking, at least, and just obviously based on their everyday circumstances, are people of color, women, um, LGBTQ identified folks like there are groups that, that are just sitting there waiting to vote um, right. and that are often disenfranchised. And instead of gearing our, our, our focus there, there's this disproportionate focus sometimes on people who, and I'm not saying just white, you know, white poor people or working class white people. I'm thinking specifically about racist white people, that some uh, people who are self-proclaimed leftists seem to be gearing all of their attention toward. Um, right. And I'm just trying to figure, like, I mean, you, you've talked about it. Can you explain a little bit more about your opinion on that? And then the final question is, uh, mm -hmm. you know, where you think the left itself is going uh, if it's going to actually succeed in 2020? And beyond yeah. that, beyond the electoral sphere as well. Right, right. I mean, 
I think a lot about, we get all kinds of narratives about what it means to be an empath, empathic individual in society. And I think that uh, sort of pursuant to this idea of emotional labor, uh, a lot of that tends to be expended uh, by people who are disadvantaged in the direction of trying to forgive or cater to or, or appeal to um, people that really don't want to have anything to do with any kind of reconciliation at all. Mm-hmm. And it's a wasted effort. It's wasted political uh, capital and political energy. I think about a book that um, an Obama uh, campaign operative named Steve Phillips wrote called uh, Brown is the New White, where he sort of explained that one of the advents of, again, the Obama elections, not necessarily the the, um, admi- the administrations, but the Obama elections as a set of coalitions um, between progressive whites who by and large, you know, by and large get it, uh, people of color, um, sexual minorities and others, that really, if you just spent most of your time sort of investing political capital and energy and getting that base to turn out and be excited about even merely social democratic reforms, uh, we wouldn't necessarily have the need to be uh, appealing to or pivoting to the center. But whiteness rears its head historically in very ugly ways. And it is also something that I think a lot of members of the left have exonerated themselves the responsibility of critiquing under the guise of being Marxists and socialists who put economics first, it actually is kind of another way of writing um, writing a bit of a moral uh, blank check to be uh, invisible or rendering invisible and not having much analysis about populations that capitalism has disproportionately um, despoiled. And so that's a real problem. Do I pretend to be the person who's going to think about how to bring uh, a lot of leftists who fall into that category to Jesus and thinking about, hey guys, here's how you're going to have to, I don't, I really don't know what that looks like. I think for me, building um, a kind of solidarity with people who already get it and with people who need the most help is really the direction that we need to be um, sort of going in. And it is, we are actually going to be rewarded electorally for doing that because um, in this book, Brown is the New White, right? The guy makes the case like there are upwards of four or five um of age uh, people who are who are not registered to vote in the state of Texas, but presidential elections there are decided by less than a million votes routinely. So that if you turned out even half of that block or even a quarter of that block, what we think of as a deep red state would suddenly become blue. I think the problem is that the Democratic Party is an institution. I'm not talking about individual Democrats who might have good hearts and might even be in DSA. The Democratic Party as an institution doesn't want to make the kinds of promises in those areas that will enable them to win because it's going to require them to pivot away from a kind of corporate politics. It's going to require them to make promises like Medicare for all. And that's going to be that's that's just frankly something that a lot of Democrats really don't want to do. So it's not a question of Democrats being completely inept or actually it is a problem about Democrats being completely (laughs) inept. But I think it's also the question of do they actually want to win on these terms or are they more content to lose uh, their way. Right. Well, and yeah, we'll see. <laughs> we shall see. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. Well, Sean, this is great. Thank you so much for your thoughts. And I hope that everyone who gets a chance to, uh, definitely reads your book very soon. It's coming out, as I said today, um, Friday, the 23rd, the full title of the book is millennials and the moments that made us a cultural history of the U S from 1982 to the present. So, uh, make sure you cop that. And thanks so much again, Sean, for being with me. All right. Thank you. And thank you for listening to the Left Pocket Project podcast. 
Before I go, I wanted to include one more nice comment from someone who wrote about the Left Pocket Project online. She said, quote, Honestly, if you're a podcast person and you're not listening to Left POC, you're screwing up, y'all. And I would have to say that I wholeheartedly agree. Whether or not you're a podcast person, however, remember that the Left Pocket Project is more than just a podcast. If you follow Left POC on social media, you already know this backstory, but here it is again just in case. I began the project in 2016 as the hashtag LeftPOC, which I started in response to people with large platforms ignoring or intentionally erasing the history of leftists of color who led and comprised leftist movements in the United States and around the world. Through the hashtag, I posted hundreds of books about left POC so people could learn more, but later expanded the hashtag into an interactive educational project, better known as the Left Pocket Project. In addition to the work I do with the Central Podcast, I also run all the social media accounts where I post articles, books, and interviews about left POC throughout history and in the present in addition to featuring a Left POC of the Week, in which I spotlight one person or group's involvement in leftist movements. And now, I've joined forces with Richard, aka Progressive Green, on Twitter, to bring you Reading Revolution, a new series of the podcast in which he and I discuss the work written by Left POC and the thinkers who inspired them. Be on the lookout soon for the first episode, in which we will discuss Fidel Castro's 1953 speech, History Will Absolve Me. All right, so that's all for now. Be sure to follow and interact with the Left Pocket Project by searching for Left POC, and that's L-E-F-T-P-O-C, wherever you get your social media fix. And to listen, subscribe, rate, and review the Left Pocket Project podcast on Spreaker, SoundCloud, or iTunes. And finally, of course, to show your support on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash leftpoc. Thanks so much again. Have a good one.